0: We're gonna be in Mark chapter 6. Now I, uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you all, but maybe it has, where, uh, you're reading through the scripture and, uh, you come across just a simple phrase that makes an impression upon you and causes you to uh, think a little bit deeper into the concept that that phrase is, uh, telling us about. That's the wonderful thing about, uh, scripture is that, uh, you know, since every word is defi- divinely inspired, uh, every phrase can, uh, give great instruction to us, and then that causes you, frankly, to look at the verses around that phrase, and uh, so that's what happened to me, and it just so happened that I was uh, reading in, not my new King James, but in old King James, and had I not been reading in the old King James, then I might have missed this. Phrase, it might not have made the impression upon me. So sometimes the old is better than the new. (laughs) And sometimes, but my, my new King James frankly is getting a little old in and of itself. So that was part of the reason I was using, uh, this particular uh, version. So, uh, here's the phrase and Sometimes people have title to their lessons, and this lesson would be as appropriately titled, I think, and he saw them toiling, and he saw them toiling. Let's read uh, the principal section where that phrase comes in. We'll be, uh, starting at verse 45 of Mark chapter 6. And, uh, I am going to read this out of the standard authorized version. Original King, well, maybe not the 1611 version, but anyway, verse 45. And this occurs, of course, after the feeding of the five thousand. And, uh, the instruction that has, that, uh, should have had to the disciples there. And it says, and straightway or immediately he constrained or commanded his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before into Bessiah. While he sent away the people, and when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, and he saw them toiling and rowing. For the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and said unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered for they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart was hardened. Here is my abridged version of that section. And immediately After the miracle of feeding 5,000 from, feeding a lot from so very little, he commanded his disciples to get into the ship to go to the other side. He departed up into a mountain to pray, and he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. And about three in the morning he came unto them, walking upon the sea. And he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. And he went up to them in the ship, and the wind ceased. And he saw them toiling. I think it's good when you're looking at a phrase like that, and particularly when you're caught by a particular word even within that phrase, it's good to define what that is. Some of your, and the word that caught me, of course, was the idea of him looking upon the disciples as they toiled. Some of your versions may say straining or struggling, making headway painfully or in distress. The Greek word is basanizo. It means to be put to the test, it's used of a touchstone, which uh, is a black silicone stone used to test the purity of gold and silver. In the scriptures, it's used most often of torment, to vex, as Lot was vexed, Peter tells us, in Sodom and to examine by putting in distress. Not a particularly uh, pleasant thought as a whole, but the important thing was, and it caught my attention, was that the Lord saw them in their toil. Now, One of the things we can consider right off is, does the Lord put us through such toiling circumstances? Well, as we can see in this portion, the answer to that is obviously yes, because that is precisely what happened with the disciples on this occasion. In fact, it's one thing that all humanity has in common. We're all toilers. We toil vocationally, whether it's at home or at the office, or these days at our home office. We toil uh, when our work is done, as Dan mentioned, particularly yesterday, that we toil in regards to our health. We even toil in our relationships with one another. Sometimes it's a struggle just getting along. We're put to the test in each of these areas. And as believers, of course, we have the toil against our tripartite enemy of our souls enemies of our souls, as you could say, that is, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But we can take confidence in this. First of all, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, pulling a verse out of Paul's reminder about trials starts off that chapter by reminding the brethren that the people of Israel, the fathers, the folks in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, were uh, under the cloud and all passed through the sea and goes through the examples that they are for us, both positive and negative. And in verse 13, he makes the point, well, verse 12, he says, wherefore let him that think if he stands take heed lest he fall. We might have confidence in our toiling, but none of us is beyond failing in that regard. But the promise is that there's no temptation, there's no test that we undertake, but, it's, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. We sung about that in our two hymns this morning, how there is no friend like the lowly Jesus. And he does indeed know all about our struggles. He does see us in whatever area we are toiling in, and he will not suffer us to be tested or tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Hebrews chapter 12 has a similar thought concerning the Lord putting us through various testings. The writer there considers it chastening that the Lord does direct us into situations as he did with the disciples on this occasion where they will, where he knew that they would be tested, that they would undergo foiling. And yet he commanded them to go without him. So Hebrews 12, and we know that the writer's point here is that if God is not dealing with us as sons, if he's not disciplining us, And we have to consider whether we're actually children of God. But he says in verse 12, Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet. Let's back up to 11, I'm sorry. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous as it was for the disciples on this occasion. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And so then we should lift up the hands which hang down in our feeble needs, and make straight paths for our feet. That which is lame be turned out of the way and let it rather be healed. And in that way, we follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. So the thing to appreciate about our toiling is that God always has a purpose in allowing us to be subject to these tests. The uh, And sometimes that occurs, as it did in this case, even if we are in God's will, even if we are following his commands, that nevertheless there will come times of toiling and struggle The idea here was that as the disciples set out on this journey which they were commanded to go to the other side by the Lord, that they encountered winds that were contrary to their progress, things which would cause them to struggle to get to the other side. And so there may be times when we are fully within the will of God, fully following his commands, and yet we find ourselves not making any progress. As the disciples, when they first started setting out, there were no winds contrary, and so they proceeded out crossing the sea. And everything probably seemed like it was smooth and things were going well, but then the contrary winds came. And their progress was hindered. So if you find yourself in that situation, and I would suggest to you that eventually all of us will probably find ourselves in that situation. Let me give you uh, a word of encouragement from our brother Spurgeon, who is teaching from this same passage. And he says, probably you have heard it said that if a Christian does not go forward, he goes backwards. That is not altogether true, for there are times of spiritual trial when if one does not go backward, then they are really going forward. Stand fast is a precept which, when well kept, may involve as much virtue as pressing forward. Sometimes just maintaining our ground when there's contrary winds, when the storms of life are against us, is in itself, progress. Now, I want us to, in our remaining time, to consider these uh, particular thoughts. First of all, there's the context of this event. There's the Lord's concern for those that are his, his compassion and his consolation that we see pictured in this event. Mark chapter 6 is indeed a marvelous chapter. You know, the chapters, divisions, of course, are not inspired, but sometimes they fit, it gives us a good uh, context to see these uh, truths that are brought out to us. Starts out by telling us that the Lord did not do many works in that, in His home area there, even though His power and compassion were such that He would do some. And then He sent out His disciples, interestingly enough, on their own, and they had great success preaching uh, repentance, and healing those who needed healing. He empowered them to do those things. And then we have what would seem to be a, a bit of a parenthetical with the uh, recounting of the outcome of John the Baptist, him being mar- martyred at the hand of Herod, But it also fits into the context, because what greater trial could there be than that which John endured and found that he, his life would be taken from him. And then the the Lord tells his disciples, as they came back and reported their great success, that uh, they should come apart and rest a while. Verse thirty of chapter six, Mark says, "And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus, and he uh, and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, Come ye there. Come ye selves apart into a desert place and rest a while." there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat, and we see them being invited to a rest, and yet this was a time of great popularity for the Lord, and so great crowds came, and he saw them in terms of being sheep without a shepherd, And so he demonstrated his shepherd love toward them and concern toward them, of course, by feeding them, feeding so many from that which was so little, demonstrating his creatorial power. He took something and made a lot from it. He was indeed the creator. And that's uh, part of the thing that the disciples were not uh, understanding. They, uh, one of the recounting of this, of this story of them crossing to the other side said that their hearts were hardened. It says that in verse 52 even of Mark 6. They weren't appreciating that the one who was with them was in fact the great creator. The one who had given them the power and ability to heal was the one who was God manifest in the flesh. So at the height of his popularity. The Lord sends the crowds away. It would have made him king even by doing it by force, but that was not his purpose in coming at that point. His purpose was to be the shepherd that would die for the sake of his flock. That he would shed his blood as the precious lamb of God so that they might not just be fed for a season or for a meal, but that they might have their sins forgiven and be imparted with eternal life. That was his purpose. So he dismisses the crowd and he sends the disciples on their way again and he goes to a mountain to pray. Now applying this context to our own situation, first of all, we can understand that the Lord will always empower us to do what He has commanded us to do. And this is true whether it's to preach the gospel, teach the truths of His word, or reach those in need, or even just to get to the other side or even just to hold our ground in the face of contrary winds and opinions. Mark's emphasis on recounting the disciples' journey across the lake has an emphasis on the disciples collectively. You know that in... Matthew's account, he deals with Peter's demonstration in one sense of his faith in getting out of the boat individually and walking on the water for a time with the Lord. But then, of course, he got his eyes off the Lord and his faith failed him. But Mark doesn't deal with that instance of individual faith, everything that he talks about, in fact, everything in this chapter, if you look at it, is on the disciples collectively. And of course, that uh, speaks to us in our day and age of our position within his church. These uh, lessons that we can gleaned from his seeing our toil applies particularly to the toil of the assembly and our collective uh, labors. But of course, we first need to consider whether we are in the boat at all. That is, are we in fact one of his disciples? Are we one who has put their faith in that finished work at Calvary? Work of salvation where he died the death that was deserved by us by bearing the punishment that he Did not deserve. And if we can affirmatively answer that, if we place ourselves in the boat, so to speak, and recognize ourselves as being part of his church, his assembly, there are several other questions that come to mind. Do each of us have our oars in the water? striving together for the sake of the gospel and for the Lord's glory. You know, there are some very interesting lessons just from the aspect of rowing. I don't know whether you've ever seen a rowing competition, but the, the idea is that each rower needs to be totally in sync with the others. There is a person in the boat that not, is not rowing, but the purpose of that person is to keep everybody in sync. And if we are to make good progress, we need to be in unison. Are we encouraging one another in the wonder of the Lord's person and work. The disciples, when they had relieved them, when the Lord had relieved them of their fear of thinking that he was some type of spirit, some type of ghost, he wasn't, he was him in the flesh. And he made his way into the boat with them that they collectively were amazed and beyond measure and wondered. And are we participating in the collective worship of our Lord Jesus Christ as we had the opportunity to do this morning? Are each of us manning Our oars, or each of us doing our part. One of the things I thought about is that in this regard, is the, uh, you've heard the term spoiler alert. Well, uh, we have prayer sheets that our brother Timothy dutifully provides to us week by week. And I thought about that, and the items that are on there can be considered toiler alerts. They give us specificity about how to pray and care for one another in our toils, whether those, regardless of what type of toil it is. Let's think about the Lord's concern as we thought about the context of this particular incident. Let's see the Lord's concern. First of all, we see that he went to the mountain and was engaged in prayer. Of course, here we have a picture of the Lord's a demonstration of his humanity and his walking on the water, of course, a great demonstration of his deity. But for us, he's not merely communing with his Father from the mountaintop, but now he is, in fact, the highest heights of glory, seated at the Father's right hand, ever making intercession for us. Just be reminded of that in Hebrews chapter 7, as we see his demonstration of concern as he would observe the disciples in their toil and struggle. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse uh, 24. By this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There is a man in glory now making intercession for us, one who was tempted, who was tried in all ways, such as we are, and yet without. Sin. Psalm thirty three eighteen reminds us Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy. So whatever area in which we are toiling these days, we can take great confidence in knowing the Lord's concern for us that he does see us in our toiling. And then there's his uh, compassion. The Lord came to them in a way that only deity could come, overpowering the force of uh, gravity, that which would hold us down. And he came to them, interestingly enough, on the hours right before dawn. It's darkest before the dawn. When the darkness was greatest, when the winds were the most contrary to them, he came to them as only deity could come. And so he promises us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. And we have not only, we don't have his physical presence with us, of course, at this point, but he has given us of his spirit. So he's not only with us, but he is in us. And again, this applies both individually and as we're looking at this passage Collectively in the assembly. Then there's his uh, consolation. He comes to them. You know, there was another incident where, where they were, disciples were in the boat and crossing over and the Lord was asleep on a pillow and they were concerned that he didn't care for them. Maybe they would perish. And he chides them for a lack of faith on that opportunity. But here, they were engaged in the struggle. They may not have been making progress. They were engaged in the struggle. They were doing what the Lord had asked them to do. And so on this occasion, he doesn't chide them for a lack of faith. No, he gives them words of comfort. He said be of good cheer it is I do not be afraid the words it is I in the Greek be that great declaration of deity I am the ego I mean the ego I me I'm sorry he's the great I am and he comes to them with that title he came into the boat to give a special nearness in their toiling and because of his divine presence the wind ceased john uh, gives us another detail concerning uh, this journey that the disciples were on. And he ends his description by saying that once the winds had ceased, once the Lord was in the boat, said they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So This brings to mind the fact that We are on a journey, of course, to a land in which we are going, a different place, the Father's house, which he is preparing for us, where there are many mansions. And when he miraculously comes for us, as he will in the clouds, we will immediately be taken up be with him, we will be immediately be delivered to the land in which we find our eternal home. So this aspect of the rapture, let's just remind us of this immediacy that would take place when he comes, our struggle against contrary winds. Against the waves, against the darkness will be uh, ended immediately. Paul puts it this way in first Corinthians fifteen. Behold, I show you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. Doesn't get any more immediate than that. At the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So wherever you find yourself toiling these days in whatever aspect of life, we can take great comfort in knowing that the Lord sees us in whatever that toil might be. That he is interceding for us, that he has a concern for us, that he doesn't just see us and remain afar off, but that he gives us a special aspect of his presence with us, and that he will give us words of cheer and comfort whether that is directly from his scriptures or perhaps from the words of another believer. We have that aspect brought out in terms of our collective help to one another in Galatians chapter 6, of course. Just look at that for a moment. as we all are seeking to put our oars into the water, and sometimes we'll find that, particularly uh, some, we might find that we might be failing in some way. It says in chapter 6 of Galatians, Paul encourages us, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can encourage one another in our toils. We can help each other to uh, keep our oars in the water, as he would have us to press on for him. And then back to, I want to close with this idea in looking forward to that time when he will take us immediately to our heavenly home. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15, great resurrection chapter by telling us that our corruptible will put on incorruption and the mortal will put on immortality. Our trials, our toiling, will be finished. And then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, that last uh toil that we have in life. And Paul could say, O death, where is thy sting, O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this great hope that we have, therefore Beloved brethren and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work or in our toiling of the Lord, for as much as you know that your toil or your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thus, these thoughts from Mark chapter 6 might be of help to us in wherever you find yourself toiling these days. Let's close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the one who is revealed in it, even our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that he has accomplished for us. We thank you that he is indeed aware of all of our struggles, all of our toiling, and that each of these struggles has a purpose in making us more conformed to his image. And we thank you for the great hope that we have that it that last trump, that we will be called in a miraculous way, that we will be raised to be with him and then to be like him for all eternity. We thank you for these great promises in your word and pray that we might live in accordance with them as we pray these things in the Lord Jesus' name, amen.